0: This is one of those passages of scripture that if you don't know the full picture of the word of God, it could be read in a very stumbling kind of way because the call of God is so intense as revealed in the call of God in Abraham's life that without a full knowledge of how this story ends and ultimately how this story points us to a fuller picture of the story of God's love for us, this is a very challenging read. But with the proper lens on this story, this is the the igniter of your faith. This is something that could restore and refresh your love for God. And it is given to us and it must be read through the the lens of verse number one because it says, now it came to pass after these things, after the the life that Abraham has lived within the call of God, the, the ups and the downs and the challenges, there is coming a moment that will be given to Abraham to show Abraham, to reveal even to him what he really believes about God because it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And this is what the test is. It says, he said to Abraham, so Abraham responds, here I am. And then in verse two, it says that God said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Again, we have to keep a full picture of the story of God in mind, but just that simple test on Abraham's life is to take his son and offer him to God. And we have to view this through the lens of the test. In this, God is taking Abraham through even a course of his own life, something that will refine who he is before God. And he does that with all of us. And really without a test in our lives, we don't really know what we believe or what we would do in certain circumstances. I think of a different test that is popular in the study of physiology. It's it's the test that you hear often called fight or flight, which is how would you respond when some some unforeseen circumstance is thrown at you that could be impending pending danger, could cause harm on your life, and you need to respond very quickly. And so do you respond by confronting it face on and fighting and standing your gro- ground, or do you respond by, by fleeing the situation? And, and it takes a certain amount of life experience to know which is the proper response. I think of That test in my own life actually happened right here at this church on a night of ministry that I was doing with uh, one of our uh, ministry leaders named Chris Smith, who leads our addiction recovery program, meets every Thursday night in the lobby. It's called Words of Freedom. And he and I were talking to a man who had come into the church who was clearly drunk. And not only was he drunk, but he was also reeling because he had just gotten out of prison and he was trying to navigate what his life, on the other side was going to look like, and he was dealing with it by drinking, which meant he was already violating some of his terms of release, and so he came in, and he was really struggling, and we tried to minister, and we tried to talk to him, and in the midst of that, he pulled out a gun, and now you have the unforeseen moment that is going to show you who you are, And all of us in the fight or flight idea, you hope to say that you would fight when it's appropriate because we all love the Marvel universe and that we would flee when it's appropriate because no one wants to get buried in an avalanche. But in that moment, Chris and I had two very different responses. I started the engine of my plane and I hopped on and I flew away. (laughs) And Chris held his ground and he talked to the man and he made sure that the situation was disarmed And he loved on him, and he prayed for him, and it made a situation that could have gone horribly go a lot better. And so afterwards, me dealing with my feelings of being like a hireling, what did I do back there? I talked to Chris, and I said, how did you do that? And he said, I grew up on the streets. I've seen this all the time. Not the first time I've hung out with someone who just got out of prison. Not the first time that I've hung out with someone who was in the middle of a parole violation. And it's definitely not the first time that someone's pulled a gun on me. So in the moment, the test has to have real life experience to know who you are. Because you don't know if you're fight or flight by answering a questionnaire. And in the same way, there is a test on your life that can go one of two directions. This is the test of faith or the test of the flesh. And when you respond to the call of God and the circumstances of life and the temptation of the world and the flesh and the devil, you have to have real experiences to know who you are and to know what the proper response is. And so what is happening in Abraham's life is he is coming to another real-life circumstance between he and God to where what is inside of him will produce what he will do to respond by faith or by flesh. And really, this is the story of Abraham that we've been studying all the way back since Genesis chapter 12, we could frame all of the stories through the lens of a test. So you think back to Genesis chapter 12. We could call that the test of comfort because Genesis chapter 12 sees the first call of God on Abraham's life in the land that he grew up in. It was the land of Mesopotamia where there was riches and there was wealth and there was his father's household, and there was everything that he knew from society to religion to culture, and God said, leave it all to a land that I will show you. And where does God take him initially? It takes him to Canaan, which will become the promised land, and it is, at the moment, a famished land. God calls Abraham to live by faith by removing him from comfort, and that's one of the tests. And then we can fast forward to Genesis chapter 13 where we find the test of power, which is one of the tests that all of us will go through because God calls us to be people who receive him in humility and he says he rejects the proud. He rejects the powerful in their own strength. And Abraham going through that test, after he leaves Egypt after the famine and he comes back, he's been given as a blessing away from Egypt great wealth in the form of livestock and herdsmen, not only for himself, but also, as we remember from our study, his nephew Lot. So much so that Abraham and Lot begin to grow beyond what the land can handle. And in that moment, there is a test of power, because Abraham has every right to choose for himself the land of plenty. He is, Abraham's, he is Lot's elder. He is the head of the household by which Lot came to the land. And it is his call that brought him to the land. And it's the promise of God that the land was his. And yet, what does he do? In the test of power, he says to Lot, the younger, with no rights, first choice. And we see in the example of Abraham, faith that trusted in God, that rejected the power plays of this world. It's one of the tests that we'll go through. But we continue because the test of power then turns into the test of wealth. In Genesis chapter 14, it's not long before we realize Lot chose poorly for himself. He chose a land of plenty where there was plenty of water and plenty of green fields for his mini stock. But it was also a land of wickedness. Where a land where Sodom would eventually be destroyed for its exceeding wickedness. And because of the wickedness, there was warring in the land. And the king of Sodom was overtaken by other kings in the region. And God used Abraham to rescue Lot. It was a preview to another rescuing that would happen in Genesis chapter 19. And in his rescuing, the king of Sodom, so grateful for Abraham's intervention with all of his mighty men that would come and defeat the other armies, he said, here's your wealth. Take it all. And what does Abraham say? I'll take none of it. Lest... Anyone think that I was who I am because of you? I've made a covenant with my God. And so it is, the test of our lives will include an offering of this world to exchange the riches of the glory of God for something that this earth has to offer you. And that's why Jesus says to all of us, don't store yourself up treasures here because you got rust and you got moth and you've got thieves that will come in and take them. Store up for yourselves by faith the treasures in heaven. But really, the theme in all of those is the test of patience because God called Abraham to a land that he would show them and then promised him a descendant through the seed of his body and his wife Sarah that would bless the nations. That would be a fulfillment of the Genesis 3 promise that the curse would not go on forever, but God would send a deliverer in the seed of the woman, and that seed would start with Abraham. And it would go from his descendants to the blessings of the world, ultimately bringing the Savior of Christ. But it was the test of patience. And there will be that test in our lives the test to wait on the timing of God and the provision of God and the plan of God, apart from all of the ways that you see fit for those things to work out in your life. But now we come, and maybe for the purposes of our last view in the life of Abraham for our sundays we come to what could be called the final test or the final exam this is the one that really defines the outcome of abraham's life and this test is true also of your life in all of the ways your faith will be refined and god will mature you from glory to glory through the ways that you come to forks in the road between the flesh and the faith that God is calling to you, there is a final exam that will set into place all other answers. And that is the exam that we look at this morning, and we find that, again, in verse 2. This is the test of devotion. Look what he says to Abraham in verse 2. Now take your son. And lest there be any confusion about which son God is talking about, he says, your son Isaac, whom you Love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him whom you love, whom you love more than anything, whom you've been waiting for and you are devoted to. In the book of Genesis, it's always worth noting the first time you see a biblical theme revealed in your journey. And this is the first time in the Bible that we see the word love. It was God calling Abraham to offer his choice, thing, person, treasure, devoted, of all things, the love of his life, given back to God. And this is the call. The final exam on our faith before God, God says, do you love me more than anything else? It's also a preview into the way that we'll make sense of this story in its fullness that God is not calling Abraham to offer a child as sacrifice in himself, but he's giving us a preview that we will see overlaying throughout this journey in Genesis chapter 22 until the sacrifice is attempted that this is a picture of God's love, your son, your only son that you love. The father's love for the son is the greatest, the first and the primary love that God reveals to us in his living word. And this is the challenge or the exam of our faith this morning because all of us have a primary devotion to something apart from God that will define what the altar looks like. The cross, the sacrifice, the call to discipleship. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, Unless you hate mother, father, sister, brother, yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. There is a call to make God the primary aim of your life. And this is a call for all of us now. Because we come here to worship God. I heard it this morning. We, we sang our hearts. We said, you have no rival And you have no equal. And then we come to sit under the authority of God. And yet there are competing things that we we desire to worship. And there are competing authorities in our hearts, all of us, this morning. That God will say, let it be known who you really are. I am calling you to the altar. And you must bring that thing that you love more than anything else. How did we see the the first tension of this play out in Abraham's life. Remember in Genesis chapter 15, it says, after these things. This is an after these things. The moment that we find the king of Sodom offering those treasures to Abraham, and Abraham says, I've made a covenant with God. I've made a covenant with Yahweh. I don't need your riches, and I don't want anyone to think that your riches made me. And so he chose loyalty to God over loyalty to this world, and then God said this. Genesis chapter 15, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, and I am your exceedingly great reward. You chose wisely, Abraham, because you rejected the treasures of this earth. You received the reward of me, and that is the reward of our faith, by the way. It's challenging to not... Think of the things that God is calling us to or providing us with or blessing us in as somehow the reward. Those are secondary rewards. The primary reward is to hear what Abraham heard. I am now your shield. I am now your God. I am now your Savior. I am now your Lord, and I want good things for your life. I'll lead you and I'll guide you. And yet, what was Abraham's response? Verse 2 of chapter 15, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Hint, hint. If I could choose my reward? If, if it was up to me, perhaps you could deliver the thing I've been waiting for? I have no child. And if I die now, my heir is Eleazar of Damascus. Certainly, you could bring me a child. So God says, I'm your reward, and Abraham says, what about a child? And we all have that. I'm your reward. I'm your shield. I'm your Lord. I'm your Savior. I am the primary focus of your life that will make heaven heaven. And you say, that's awesome. Now what about this? Here's a question that's worth asking and we ask it from time to time and I think it's framed correctly by John Piper when he says it's the question of the generation. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you have ever had on earth, and all the food you have ever liked, and the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you have ever seen, and all the physical pleasures you have ever tasted, and there was no human conflict or natural disaster, would you be satisfied in heaven without Christ? The question of the generation, is there something on this side of heaven That if you could just remain in that, it would be heaven. And he goes on to say that the job of the believer as a light into the world is to proclaim a resounding no to the generation. That there is nothing that God calls you to lay at the altar to say, here was something that was competing as a rival that would ever be worth an exchange for your soul. And this is the test of devotion, that now we see this morning the example of Abraham as to why he is the father of faith. We know the story from Genesis chapter 12 until now is filled with some moments of faith and moments where he has a lapse of faith. But this morning we read why the book of Hebrews in the hall of faith proclaims Abraham as the father, exalted in the faith, because he gives us an answer Into how he responded, into the primary sacrifice of the thing that you're devoted to most apart from God. And we should listen to this because it is the final exam. First, we see in verse 3 So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and he arose. And he went to the place of which God had told him. God called. Abraham obeyed. This is the first answer to the test of faith in our life. And when God calls us to renew the first love by which we are saved, holding nothing back from the acceptance of the free gift of salvation, coming with humility and empty hands, crying out, for God's life in us? The answer is that we obey. Abraham did not delay in his obedience. Don't you love the detail that's given to us in the word that he arose early and he got to work in his obedience to do what God called him to do? God said, Abraham, and he said, here I am three words that point us to the obedience that God calls us to, to live by faith. Because faith is not simply a statement of faith that you agree with on a church website. Faith is not simply the box that you check on the country's census. Faith is how you respond to the call with your actual life. And in the journey of Learning from the scriptures, the example of men of faith, we also have the example where people lapse in faith. And that's why we get reminded, even in this moment, of that picture of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. We studied that weeks ago. God was sending judgment on a wicked city because he is a just God that will not allow evil to continue forever. And before the judgment comes, Abraham, acting as an intercessor, Pleads with God, so God sends messengers to say, Flee the city. Destruction's coming. To us, He says, Flee wickedness, because your sin will find you out, and it will be punished, and it will be death and destruction for your life. And in the call, how do we respond? Well, we see the lack of obedience in Lot. You remember what it says. The angels come as messengers, and it says that they urged Lot and his family to leave the city, and Lot lingered. Isn't that one of the responses of the call to the obedience to God's word this morning? It's funny how your flesh always talks you into the opposite of the obedient call. When God calls you to wait, your flesh says, hurry up. And when God calls you to flee wickedness, to turn from your sin, to repent and be refreshed and restored in his presence, your flesh says not so fast. But I can assure you this morning that waiting on the call of God and refusing to obey him does not make the call easier. It's kind of like going up a high dive. Have you ever seen this moment where someone goes up a high dive and they get to the edge and they realize that it's so high that they just need a little time to talk themselves into it? So it is the call of God. God calls us to live as fools for Christ, confounding the wise of this world, meaning he doesn't call us to live by the perfect strategies that make sense to the flesh. He calls us to things that don't make sense, but honor him in his glory and to trust in him apart from what we see and understand. And so often, the longer you wait on the high dive, the more likely it is you go down by the stairs. We've all made that mistake too often. Another example of the antithesis of this, we we find in the future story of God as the nation is developed and it goes wayward like sheep gone astray, a picture of our own waywardness from the faithfulness of God, he raises up prophets to warn his people, to call them to repentance. But not only his people, because one of the prophets' name was Jonah and Jonah was called to people that were not inside the nation of Israel the Assyrians, in the capital city of Nineveh. And the Assyrians, in the days of Jonah, it was very clear, were the stark enemies of God's people. They had wiped out the kingdom of God. They had taken them captive in a cruel and unjust way as a punishment for their waywardness, and the wrath of God revealed that God does judge if you do not obey his call. But what was his response? Where Lot delayed, Jonah fleed. And isn't that one of the responses as well? God calls Jonah to Nineveh to preach to the enemies as a picture of the love of God, the gospel of God, that he saves his enemies, that he loves his enemies. And in fact, he calls us to do the same thing. That when the spirit of God is living in us, we now are ambassadors to the love of God that goes beyond the border of the kingdom. It goes beyond the household of the faith it crosses the street into the neighbor's household, into the borders beyond your country and your people. And sometimes the command to love your enemy, to be an ambassador for Christ, to represent the glory of God through your good works, that all men would see his glory shining through you. And what do we do? God, if I do that, you'll save them. I'm going the other way. (laughs) And we flee the presence of God. We flee the commandments of God. He calls us to love people. And we say, surely you couldn't mean them. Which is another example of someone that we see in Scripture as the antithesis of obedience, the flesh overcoming the faith. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, Who do men say that I am? Peter rightfully answers, You're the Christ, the King the one who is coming to set us free rightly, said Peter, upon that rock, your confession, I build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome. And then he gives a preview into what that's going to look like. The son of man, the Christ, will go to Jerusalem to pick up his cross and die and rise again. And now Peter says, not so, Lord. In the call to flee wickedness, lot delays. In the call to love the enemy, Jonah flees. And in the call to pick up the cross, Peter argues. And these are the ways that obedience will be overcome by flesh. To delay the calling of God that he gives to you this morning, to delay the devotion to make God the actual worship of your life, to flee the commandments of God and to run in the other direction, Or just to argue with God. Not the way I would have done it, God. Not the way I would have planned it. Not the person I would be my neighbor. And we all have opportunities in this world right now to understand the obedience of God lived out by the practical application of faith that is including what James will call faith-producing works. In fact, James says... Some of you will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well and we preach every Sunday morning to people who believe there is one God but unfortunately we're all in evil company if we leave it at what we believe. Because then James says, good, but even the demons believe. There's a sense of the law of God even on the unbelievers that have hardened their hearts. So, what separates us? We take our beliefs and we turn it into obedience, trusting that where God leads us and guides us, he takes us to good places with our life. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that without faith, works, without works, it is dead? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac at the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by his works, by his obedience, his faith was protected. Was perfected. It came on the other side of the exam with the perfect grade. Now we know how Abraham responds because Abraham answered the call with obedience. Now we come to another response of Abraham in verse four. It says, then the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey And the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. A man of faith that we must look at and and ponder what he said in a moment where Abraham didn't fully know what was going to happen, but he did know the result. He said, we are going to worship. We're going to the altar not by a burdensome commitment to obey because of religion, but because in the altar of sacrifice of devotion to make God priming in our life, we are worshiping the Lord and we will return together. But Abraham is faced with a problem that many of us feel. And that problem is when the promise of God seems to contradict the command of God or the circumstance that God has surrounded you with your life. Here's how Alexander McLaren Says it in his commentary on the book of Genesis what a cruel position to have God's command and God's promise apparently in diametrical opposition. But faith loosened even the seemingly impossible tangle of contradiction and felt that to obey was for man and to keep the promise was for God. To obey is for man and to keep the promise is for God. And isn't it funny how the flesh comes in, the natural man, our ideas and our wisdom and our plans apart from God comes and tries to do the opposite of both of those things. The flesh says, don't obey. You should delay or argue or flee. And then it says, and as for the promises of God to find life and peace of salvation and relationship with God, you fulfill the promise yourself. And that's why we find a somewhat confusing statement in the beginning of this this chapter when God calls to the altar of devotion Abraham to bring Isaac, his only son. His only son. We've been studying. There was that whole Hagar saga, remember, where Hagar was an answer somehow meeting God in the promises. For the flesh says it is for you not to obey, for you to fulfill the promise. And Hagar was the tool of the flesh that delivered Ishmael. No mention of Ishmael in Genesis chapter 22. What does God recognize? He recognizes the son of the promise. And when we study Ishmael, we study again with the lens of an allegory that says Hagar was a picture of the law and self-fulfilling righteousness. And her son was the son of a, a slave woman. The law is a slave, and the son of the slave woman had to be cast away, and now God recognizes it no more. Let it be a warning to all of us that God does not recognize the work of the flesh. Where we take over the promises of God to fulfill them on our own account, there's no record of it in the economy of God. I don't see Ishmael when I call you to sacrifice your devoted son. And Matthew chapter 7, which we'll study in the summer on the mount, it's waiting for us. It's the reminder to us, the people of God's kingdom now, that Jesus sees no record of the flesh. Because there are those that will come to Jesus on that day that said, look at the works that we did. We preached in your name, cast out demons in your name, did money, miracles in your name. And Jesus will say, I don't know you. The works of the flesh he doesn't recognize. And so we come to the answer in the great contradiction where the command seems to be a contradiction to the promise. And yet, as the commentary says, Abraham believed that his job was the obedience and and God's job was the promise, and faith means that God will keep his word regardless of what we see, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Another overlay of the full picture of the gospel given us to us in a deeper way through this story. Of whom it is said, in your son Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. The same way which he also received him in a figurative sense. What does that mean? God can raise him from the dead the same way I received him which was from the dead. Abraham, as good as dead, became the father of Isaac with Sarah, the mother, with a womb that was as good as dead. And by a miracle, God produced the promise. And by a miracle, God will keep the promise. And we are called not only to believe that, but did you catch a word that is so faith-changing when you really think about what the word is saying to us this morning? He says, and he who had received He took hold of the promise. He didn't just study the promise and consider it. It goes farther even than believing the promise. But he took the promise and he made it his own. It lived inside of his heart. And then he clung to the promise and he realized that no matter what God was calling him to, Isaac was called to be the promised child by whom many descendants would come. Remember that moment, Genesis chapter 17. And Abraham says, Receive Ishmael. And God says no. By Sarah in Isaac, many descendants. And if you ever forget, it's so many descendants that you can't number them by the stars in the sky or count them by the sand in the sea. And so what Abraham knows is this. God promised something that has yet to be delivered, but he received it as though it was already true. So if the commandment contradicts the promise... Lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the God of miracles. And so I say that to us this morning, to my heart, to your heart this morning. Do you believe in the promises of God by sight or by faith? Because it is so tempting to believe in the promises of God by what you can actually see. And as soon as you can't see it, you doubt it. How is this all going to work out? Lord, I don't see it. Abraham didn't know how God would deliver, but he knew that he would. And it is so. Let me give you some promises that are true for everyone who believes in the same God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob this morning. We already read one of the promises, which is crucial to your faith. As an overlay of this story, we get a fulfillment, a full picture, dimly lit now, fully lit in the Gospels. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him, here's the promise, would not perish, but would have everlasting life. But what happens? Sometimes we receive that promise by sight. And what we see is a lot of perishing. Look around. The world seems to be perishing. The church at times seems to be perishing. Our lives caught up in the midst of a perishing world and a confusing church seem to be perishing. And yet, in the moments where the circumstance contradict the promise, we live not by sight but by faith. Do you believe that this world, for those who believe, is a lost cause? Do you believe that when the circumstances of your life get so hard that you can cry out, don't you care that I'm perishing, Lord? A reference to Mark chapter 4 as he calls his disciples to come and to cross the Sea of Galilee. He says, let us get in the boat and go to the other side. And yet they get halfway through and a giant storm comes up. And he said, maybe by the other side, the disciples said to themselves, maybe he actually meant, let us get into this boat and get into the middle of the Sea of Galilee and then sink. Don't you care that we're perishing? The command was to go to the other side. And so Jesus responds to his disciples the same way he responds to his church, the same way he responds to any pessimistic and hopeless believer in a season of doubt, O ye of little faith. It is by my word that I calm the storms of this, of this world. By this word, he calms the storms of your heart and he restores in you a mustard seed of faith that, faith that will believe that you're not perishing, that your life is not perishing, that those who trust in the Lord will not be led astray and the church age that we belong to now, the gates of hell will not stand against it. And we hold on to that in all of our doubt and confusion because the promise is as sure as the promise giver. Here's another promise for you. John chapter 16, verse 33. In this world, you'll have a lot of trouble. That's a promise. (laughs) But take heart, for I have overcome. A promise that when you live by sight, is sometimes hard to cash in. Because the world at times seems to be overcoming us. But Jesus says... As sure as I conquered sin and death in the grave, I conquer every little secondary problem of this world. And if I conquered it, the same spirit that is in me that is in you, you're conquering it. Now, you're more than a conqueror. You're more than victorious. Always in Christ. Always triumphing in Christ. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the circumstances you face in some of the tests of your faith are already completed in Christ? Overcome. You worship in advance, in other words. You say thank you in advance, and you praise God in the midst of the storm for how he's going to work it out, not if he's going to work it out. And then a promise that we have to cling to daily. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as the apostle Paul goes through a moment of doubt in his own ministry, he cries out to the Lord, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you. A promise directly to him, shared by all of us who believe, by the power of the scripture given to us as a promise that God's grace is sufficient for anything that this world throws at you. And then he goes on to say that his power is made perfect in your weakness. That's that's a promise. That's God's word that you stand on, even in the midst of contradictory feelings and circumstances and commands. Because it doesn't always feel Very empowering to have your weakness exposed, does it? But you know for certain today that by grace you have been saved. Some of us need to cling to that promise as Abraham clung to the promise of Isaac as the promised child this morning. That you are here welcomed into the presence of God and you are here accepted by the love of God not by your good works, not because of what you did or didn't do on Saturday night or the course of this last year. You have come here and God's grace is sufficient to make you someone who can receive the free gift of salvation in his name. He is sufficient to save you. And it's by grace that he saves you. And then as the song says, it's by grace that he leads you on and God's grace is sufficient for every trial, every fall, every lapse of faith where the flesh overcomes. And God says to you now, the promise is sure. My grace is sufficient to you. And this is a promise that must be not only believed but be received. I I take it from God's word and I place it in your hands and you say yes to that, God. Write it on my heart. Seal it in my mind and allow it to be the light and the lamp of your word directing my steps that you have overcome. That your grace is sufficient and that I will not perish in your name because I believe in you. Finally, we come to this last example of Abraham that we'll learn from this morning. Verse six, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. This is a picture, again, of Isaac as a, as a type of Christ. The father takes the son And they go together, a picture of the willingness of Isaac to go with Abraham. And on this journey, Isaac will make an important observation that all of us have insight to already, because he says this, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, I am, it is me, son, here I am. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? It's a really good question from Isaac's point of view, he sees everything laid out. He follows his father faithfully. faithfully, And he realizes on this three-day journey, which is reminiscent of another three-day journey, he realizes there was something missing from the picture. And he says, where's the lamb? And now Abraham, by faith, gives us something that, we cling to in our desire for for our lives to be pleasing to God, which means we're living by faith. Abraham says to him, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Not only did Abraham receive the promise and hold it in his heart, but he also believed in the provision. God will provide. God will do something. He will intervene. He will, he will bring himself into the picture. I believe in the goodness of God. Even in the commandments of God are challenging and hard and difficult. I believe that God will provide himself a way of escape. That we don't put our own lives on the altar. And there's nothing that we put on the altar that God doesn't have a way to increase the value of in our lives. And so it says, then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. In this, there's no allegory that perfectly explains the gospel. And as much as Isaac can be seen as a picture of a willing son, that comes and offers himself. He walks with Abraham. He accepts the answer that Abraham gives. Some commentators say that Isaac was too advanced in in his youth, maybe 27 years old at this point, and Abraham way too old, For there not to be a willingness. And we see the willingness of Christ to the Father. Nevertheless, your will be done. He lays down his life and has the power to pick it up. But also in Isaac, I see the call for all of us to pick up the cross. Every one of us carrying the wood of the altar daily to lay down our lives for Christ. And in the picture before us now, we see our version of Isaac. Because it says, then Abraham bound him. Because as willing as we are to receive the call and to pray for the faith to live it out in obedience, to receive the promise and believe in the provision, Romans chapter 12 says that we it is our reasonable service to God to live, to give our bodies as living sacrifices. Whatever you want, Lord, whatever in my life I can sacrifice to you, I bring myself to the altar. But the problem with living sacrifices is that we have a tendency to crawl off the altar, don't we? Wayward in our devotion. Wayward in our desire to actually live it out. And we also, may we be bound to the altar. Bound by the word of God that is preached, that is read, that is received by faith. That as we go wayward like sheep that go astray, God's word come and brings correction. Those who love knowledge love correction. And as we commit to follow Jesus, we take part in the community life that brings the the bounding, the binding, the ropes of the community of God to our life. And in our worship we come once again, time and time again, to lay our crowns and our idols and our burdens at the foot of the cross every week. Bind me once again to you, Lord. Your grace is sufficient to bind me to you. That's why I love this hymn. Come thou fount. O to grace. How great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Believers, maybe we be bound to the altar. May the flesh be crucified daily for anything that would offer a way off the altar to the the idols of this world, the provisions of this world. And then to see the gospel in all of this, as we do this, it, it brings light to the glory of God's love because he called Abraham to stand a test. But it would only be a test. It would only be a preview of a father's love that would not be held back. Abraham stretched out his hands and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. When we respond, here I am, to the call of God, we can respond, here I am, to the provisions of God. Amen? And he said, don't lay a hand on the lad or do anything, for now I know That you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there beside him was a ram caught in a thicket by thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. The offering continued. He didn't call it off, the substitution still had to be made, but God provided a ram. Isaac said, Where's the lamb? God provided a ram, lest we be confused about what this fully meant. Abraham will go on to play this, to call this mountain the place where God provides, and this is the very mountain that Christ was crucified. The lamb was replaced by a ram because the ram was only temporary. The sacrificial system that awaited the coming of Christ was only temporary, and then came the lamb of God. Worthy to take away the sin of the world, will you receive the promised Lamb? And will you believe in His provision for your life? That His grace is sufficient. And the promised Lamb went to the cross so that you wouldn't have to. And He exchanged His righteousness for your unrighteousness. And then He made you sons and daughters of the Father that so loved the world. That is the gospel fully realized in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, slain from the foundations of the world for you and for me. And anyone who believes is now a promised son or daughter. For those of us who believe, may we seal all of this with the, binding of the cords of worship to make a devotion of God once again to say God take it all whatever my most coveted possession on this earth is I now lay it on the altar of worship and I trust that you are better I trust that a life in you is better and some of you have to make that commitment for the very first time with obedience and without delay because God has brought you into this place by no accident to say that he loves you. And he would love to exchange his perfect righteousness for your unrighteousness, your failure, your flesh, your sin, your separation. And by faith, without delay, without arguing, without running, you say, here I am, Lord. Let's stand in worship.